Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. I'm Teresa. And we are here to talk about horror films as we as we do for uh <laughs> As as we have been doing for a while now, this is episode eight. Yay, episode eight. Oh my gosh. You said we've been doing it for a while now, and it's only been three months, but it it's pandemic time still, so does that mean it's a year? I think so. Is yeah. It? At least 14 months pandemic time. Three months pandemic time is equal to 14 months. Don't ask me how the math works. I we're, mean, we're making it up as we go along. Time has no meaning, which is actually kind of appropriate. Like, pandemic time is kind of appropriate for today's movie. We are talking about Day of the Dead from 1985, the George Romero classic. Yay. Part of the, um, the well, debatable trilogy or quadrilogy, depending on what school you follow. I It is a quadrilogy, but the classic trilogy, uh, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and then, of course, Land of the Dead. So Land of the Dead would be the ending, that like, ending then to this continuity? Technically, yeah. He made two other of the dead zombie films after this, Diary of the Dead and Survival of the Dead. Oh, yeah, Survival. Okay. And it's kind of debatable whether they actually fit well into the continuity of the original four. Okay. For a long time, there were people that even said that Land was not, it you know it was a sacred trilogy but mm-hmm. really actually very directly land of the dead does factor into um the original films okay this is interesting i feel like maybe this is the first one that we've done that has like a really tried and true hardcore cult following i yeah. think yeah i think so because there is you can be a casual lover of day of the dead but there is a hardcore following of george romero movies um, I, which I think you can speak to a little bit more than I, I even know about, I'm sure. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, George Romero, worth noting for um, folks who might be more on the fringes of the genre or are newer to the genre. So we call George Romero the father of the zombie movie. He is not the first person to make a zombie movie. He didn't make up zombies. Zombies exist in traditional literature going back to the beginning of time, the sort of dead that rise and maybe they eat the flesh of the living or maybe they are um, just kind of mindless and they are servants or or um, enslaved by the living. He didn't make that up. We've also seen that in film. I mean, White Zombie predates all of this. Right. But George Romero with Night of the Living Dead is considered the father of the modern zombie movie and the father of the zombie film as a subgenre within horror. He really sort of set the tone and kicked off what became this huge multi-million dollar um, kind of industry within horror. Um very slowly and very quietly as an independent filmmaker when he first made Night of the Living Dead. And people who follow him and study him are really very, very devoted and look to him as sort of the person who set the cues for all the things we've seen. You know, there would be no Walking Dead without George Romero. Yeah, literally. 
Yeah, I mean, and he also kind of set the standard for the flesh-eating zombie, Mm -hmm. because before that, you had Omega Man with Charlton Heston. A little different. Uh, You have White Zombie, very different. Um, Not a flesh-eating, you know, uh, like, the the word we think of zombie is, like, a flesh-eater now, but it hasn't always been like that. Correct. Um, I Am Legend was also kind of an uh, early iteration of zombies. Similar thing. But I think George Romero really, like, kicked it off with the dead are rising. They are eating the flesh of the living. All right, now go. You know, that's kind of like the standard. Yes. And the dead are rising. They are eating the flesh of the living. And I think the important thing that Romero did that we see throughout all of zombie movies since then, at least the ones who do it well, are... and. Are the flesh-eating zombies the biggest threat or is humanity's inability to cooperate and communicate an even bigger threat to their own survival? He baked that in from the very beginning. He plays with it in a different way in every single one of his movies. And of course, um, everyone that followed him then plays with that idea. Yeah. Because, I mean, now we have, you have your 28 Days Later zombie, which is like a crazy, fast-running, like, Probably nobody's going to make it out alive, zombie. Yep. You have your um, walking dead zombies, which are just mindless, like no redemption, you know. But George Romero, at first you have the the whole like zombies are stupid. They have no brain. All they want is to eat flesh. And he kind of does that through Night of the Living Dead and really Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. But in Day of the Dead, we start to play with are these zombies really like that? Are they irredeemable? Or is there something more that's happening? Can we dive further into the causes of this? Is there something we can do to either domesticate them or can't like, are they unsavable? Which I think is a really interesting thing because so often you just think, well, zombies are just zombies. Like there's nothing you can do. Shoot them in the head. That's the only way that you can get away from them. And that is something that it definitely persists in zombie like movies and television and literature and comic books. But I really think it's interesting that he kind of breaks his own mold. He's like, I did this thing and I redid it in another movie. Not redid it, but you know, Expanded upon it. Yeah, that idea still persists in my second film. But in this third film, I'm kind of breaking my own rules. And we're talking about, um, like, can you train them? Like, is there a way to reverse this? Uh, What is causing this exactly? Why is it spreading through bites? That kind of thing. So really interesting way to, like... Like, I'm bored of this, you know, this rule that I've set. Let's break out of that rule and make something even bigger and better. And it almost backfired on him. Because while um, this film has always been praised for its effects, you really see Tom Savini coming into his own as an effects master in this film. It did not do well initially. It got a very lukewarm critical reception For years and years and years, if you talk to horror fans, what's the best Romero movie? It was always Dawn. Mm -hmm. Always, always, always. Night of the Living Dead is sacred. Dawn of the Dead is the best, most fun um, for a variety of reasons. It's got the score from Goblin. It's got the mall. it, It has a lot going for it. But this one was just kind of like, eh, eh. Yeah. It was Romero's, uh, personal favorite though. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that we're finally starting to see horror fans come around to this movie because even in the time that I've really been paying attention to horror as a genre, so maybe 
over 15 years now, I've seen sort of a lot of fans coming around, giving this one another chance, watching it again and being like, oh, I I see what he was doing here and I get it and I appreciate it more. Yeah. And watching it with Land of the Dead is really interesting to see that full progression of the four films. Nice. I uh, This was actually my first time watching it. I've seen Night of the Living Dead and for our listeners, even if you haven't seen Night of the Living Dead, you've definitely seen Night of the Living Dead. Oh, yeah. Because it's public domain now. So almost any horror film that has to show a film inside of it, they pretty much always pick Night of the Living Dead. Like yeah. almost in t- like almost always. It's almost a rule at this point because it's it's public domain. Yeah. Or you've seen the Savini remake, which is very... It's not a perfect remake, um, and it's not shot for shot, but it very much honors the original. So I think, yeah. And if you haven't seen it, go see it. It's yeah. so good. <laughs> yeah. And um, it really set the stage, too, for Romero to um, have a political commentary or a social commentary in his films. That one, I mean, even if you think you've seen Night of the Living Dead, if you haven't seen it all the way through, like, it's really a very chilling view of what was happen- happening socially at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so very much a social critique. And Dawn of the Dead, similar, um, not exactly the same. There's a lot more money that went into that one, although it was still very much an indie film, less uh, like mainstream production, I would say, than Day. But Dawn of the Dead obviously also got a very popular remake by Zack Snyder, which we referred to um, when we were talking about Army of the Dead for our Best of uh, 2021 episode. Um, Very, very good remake. Um, Definitely launching the idea of Dawn of the Dead into the 20th century. Mm -hmm. 21st century? No. I get centuries mixed up. I'm (laughs) I'm not good at that. 21st century. I guess he's launching into the 21st century. I have a history podcast. It's fine. I can do this. <laughs> I'm good at this. <laughs> I know. I know dates. Uh, but it launched it into the modern era. And it yeah. made like, uh, it made zombies like, because we really hadn't had a really big like blockbuster zombie movie in a long time. And that was one of the first zombie movies I ever saw. So um, it, and it, uh, it definitely still has that like, kind of uh, social commentary, political commentary that's happening. So I had seen those and I had seen the original Dawn, never seen Day though. Uh, And I think I saw like, I think it was either Land of the Dead or Diary of the Dead, but it's been like eons since I saw that one. So I was very excited to go in with a fresh pair of eyes to see this one, especially after all of the other zombie content that we're getting because it became like in vogue again. Like we got Walking Dead and then it was like, okay, well, zombies are cool again. So let's make a ton of stuff about zombies. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting because the modern sort of zombie resurgence is akin to what happened sort of simultaneous with Dawn of the Dead, the original in the 70s, which is you had Uh, Lucio Fulci and the Italians doing their zombie films, trying to tie right into the Romero continuity, uh, for better or worse. And then you had John Russo, who co-wrote Night of the Living Dead with George Romero, making Return of the Living Dead and spawning off that thread of sequels, air quotes, sequels, depending on how you want to take them. Yeah. So you saw this boom back then. And yeah, it was kind of 28 days later and Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead that started that modern zombie resurgence that then, of course, went mega crazy with The Walking Dead. Yeah. And now it's like zombie is like, I mean, you see kids now 
Like, <laughs> they, they're like, oh, I love The Walking Dead. And you're like, Ex- excuse me? Like, okay. are you allowed to watch that? Are you even up that late? Yeah. What? <laughs> but it's because par- their parents are people who loved the Zack Snyder movie. Yep. They, they Then they went w- back and watched the Romero flicks. Or maybe they grew up with the Romero flicks. And now they're like, oh, I can show my kids something. And maybe this is not appropriate for children. But it's on AMC, so it's fine. Yeah. But don't let your kids watch Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, because that's probably not a good idea. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, kids now are like, Negan is my favorite. And you're like, yikes. You, what? Don't, you can't watch that. You're not allowed to. You're like six. <laughs> okay, so bringing it back to this movie, I would argue that characters like Negan and the governor from The Walking Dead would not have been possible without Rhodes. Oh, yeah. From Day of the Dead. Yeah, totally. Like, there are so many things now, having seen this, where I'm like, yes, this is absolutely a through line that, that was inspired by that. Because you do have some really strong characters in Night of the Living Dead, but um, obviously nobody really makes it out alive of Night of the Living Dead. And then you have Dawn of the Dead, which, the, I mean, some pretty memorable characters. Um, a strong black lead, very much established uh, a strong black lead in a zombie film, because you do have that in Night of the Living Dead, but you have, you know... Um, I can't remember the guy who played the character in Dawn, but... Ken one, Forey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that is kind of established, and then you have that, ex- like, a very similar character, strong black lead in Day of the Dead. Mm-hmm. And d- that's something that still exists even now. Like, um, you have... I'm so bad with The Walking Dead, but you have a strong black lead in The Walking Dead. You have Michonne um, kind of, you know, gender bending that a little bit. But you have Michonne, which is a strong, very strong black character that's kind of gone through The Walking Dead. Probably one of the longest living um, characters in The Walking Dead. Yeah. 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 I mean, seasons and seasons and seasons. So you absolutely can see that he made the baby and now people are kind of like drawing off of that so very you can very 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 much tell now especially that george romero he was the godfather he was the dad and now we're all like (laughs) you know we're all kids like yeah now we're playing with all the toys that you had so very very cool very very much a um it's cool for me to see when people are drawing from those things and honoring them it's really cool so Absolutely. So I, I want to kind of go back and talk a little bit about the plot of this film. So in Romero's prior zombie films, you get to see the beginning of the outbreak, the kind of what is happening? Oh my gosh, what are these? People are rising from the dead. They're eating flesh. What's going on? This movie starts very much in the later days of the so-called zombie apocalypse. So The dead have risen. We know that. We see abandoned cities. We focus on a group of characters. It's a really interesting group. You know, Romero loves his group dynamics. And Mm -hmm. this one really, really emphasizes that. We have a group of soldiers, scientists, and then two uh, kind of civilian mechanic pilot guys all trying to live and work and survive together in an underground bunker in Florida. Although... All of the underground stuff was actually filmed outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where Romero kind of had his base of operation. But um, these folks are living and working and trying to survive together. The scientists are tasked with, it seems, trying to find any solution that science can offer to this situation. Uh, The military folks are seen to be, you know, they're supposed to 
guard them and support that mission. And the civilians are there to provide transport. And of course, in the latter days of an isolated apocalypse situation, tensions are high. People are taking their own initiative for better or worse. And uh, bad stuff happens. Yeah, definitely. I just want to just kind of go over the cast a little bit. So we have Sarah, who's the only woman in the entire uh, situation that we're having right now. Um, she's a part of the science scientist contingency, played by Lori Cardell. 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 Um, and then we have Terry Alexander as John, one of the, uh, he's the helicopter pilot. Um, Joseph Pilato played Rhodes. He's our, uh, he's the captain of the army, um, the army guys that are there. McDermott, who is the helicopter pilot, played by Jarleth Conroy. And then you have Logan, played by Richard Liberty. I would say that those guys are kind of like our main main dudes, but we also have uh, Bub, our favorite zombie Everyone's in this movie. Zombie. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, you also have Steel, played by... Oh, sorry. Bub was played by Sherman Howard and Steel, who's kind of like the enforcer, like the big guy, the guy that Rhodes kind of commands around played by Gary Howard Clark. And if you watch carefully, you'll see a tiny little cameo by baby Greg Nicotero, yep. um, who would later go on to Walking Dead fame. So Yeah, yeah, who was um, working with Tom Savini at that point, really kind of cutting his teeth on effects work. So he had a cameo in the film, but he was also doing on uh, Savini's effects team for this. Yeah, and Savini very, very, very much in this film. I mean, maybe not like, more than any of his other films but you can you can see what a little bit of cash and a lot of like love and appreciation for the genre happened in that movie yeah kind of all came together it's real gross it's real gross yeah in the best possible way <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's like like when you watch this movie you can absolutely see Shaun of the dead borrowed from this movie uh-huh. yeah, 28 days later borrowed from this movie like some of the scenes are almost exactly the same in those movies which is certainly made to be an homage not a copycat it's like we love you tom savini look we did it too yeah you know um, <laughs> absolutely and plus like you can't get enough of like zombies tearing people apart if you're watching a zombie movie it's kind of the reason why you're watching it, right? Oh, yeah. Well, and Savini designed so many iconic zombies that then people will replicate as a nod to his work. I mean, we see, I think, more than any of the other Romero films. You see a lot of Romero zombies showing up in cameos in The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. But I think Day has the most Romero cameos because you see... um In addition to some of the background guys, you see Bub very prominently in a scene in a tunnel, which is like just a straight up like hat tip uh, to this movie. And you also see Dr. Tongue, who is the zombie at the beginning where half his face is ripped off and his tongue's kind of like dripping out of his mouth. Depending on the poster, it's either Dr. Tongue or Bub on the posters for this movie. So you get to see them both. parodied and copied and and lovingly cameoed in a lot of different zombie media yeah and the zombies are also great like whenever i think of like a bad zombie and no shade to this movie at all but i think of original evil dead and i'm like yeah because that like it's so low budget so Mm -hmm. low budget and you're like wow that's some of that is rough. And then you see this movie and you're like, wow, okay, this is what a great Romero zombie can look like. Yeah. And the effects are just chef's kiss. 
you can't see my chef's kiss, but I'm giving one. Um, <laughs> it, they're great. And I also read in the trivia, because I like to read a lot of trivia while we're watching movies, uh, they used a lot of pig, like, intestines and stuff they in did. this. And it is, it's nasty. Yeah. <laughs> it's and really s- gross. And so there's an apocryphal story about the production of this film that um, I got to go to a like a cast reunion in 2015, which I'll get into more here in a minute. But there's a story that even the cast at the reunion was asked about this. And they're like, we're pretty sure this is true. So they were back and forth from Pittsburgh area to Florida to film some of the scenes. And one of the scenes that they were set to film when they got back from Florida was the scene of Rhodes, the very, very famous ending scene of Rhodes being disemboweled by the zombies. And they had a uh, like a fridge with all of these entrails in it. Oh, God. And apparently it was, th- this is where the apocryphal stuff happens. It was either somebody did it on purpose or on accident or the power went out, but the fridge lost power or oh, got no. unplugged. Oh, no. And so by the time they got around to shooting this scene and, and Joe Pilato, who played Rose, confirmed this, the entrails were like, rotting and gross and stinking and so some of the facial expressions you see him making as he's being disemboweled are him like literally gagging because the smell was so terrible oh my god (laughs) yeah oh that's gotta be terrible i I, that's kind of why i read the trivia though it's like i love hearing these background stories because it, it i think that it just adds to it I mean, knowing a little bit of background about a movie is never a bad thing. At least not in my opinion. I but, agree. But talk to us about um, going to this cast reunion in 2015. Yeah. So as Romero was known to do for most of his zombie films, he put out a big casting call for zombie extras. And he sort of would put it out kind of in the Midwest grapevine. And so you would get people who were perhaps uh, theater actors or regional theater actors all kind of descending on Pittsburgh to be zombies in these sort of open castings. So a friend, um, a friend of my partner and I, Jeff Berkman, was uh, a zombie in Day of the Dead. He had a friend in Pittsburgh who called him up. Jeff is an actor, uh, does a lot of theater, still does a lot of work in independent films. And his friend called him up and was like, hey, do you want to come be a zombie in this horror film? And he said, absolutely. So they did a an anniversary reunion in 2015 um, at Cinema Wasteland, which is a horror convention outside of Cleveland that my partner has like a historic relationship with, used to vend at when he was younger and making indie films, all of that. And so we offered to Jeff, um, if he'd like to go up, we would drive him. And he was very honored and said, yes, I would love to go be a part of this. So we took him up for that, um, got to see the cast panel. We got to meet Joe Pilato, who was just like charming. He's uh, since passed away, but he was just, he was a delight. I've got some uh, pictures that I will maybe share on Instagram after this episode drops of me and Joe Pilato. The cast panel was one of the best panels that I've ever attended. I don't typically get to attend a lot of cast panels. Like if I'm at a convention, I'm typically working. Mm -hmm, (laughs) So like I barely get to make it like out on the sales floor beyond wherever we are. But this was a situation where we were just attending and um, we got to hear a lot of really great behind the scenes insights, kind of everyone 
that was living on the cast at that time was there. So we had a really good representation of the main cast. So it was pretty close to when George Romero died. He was still alive, but he was not in attendance. He was already pretty ill, which was unfortunate because it would have been great to have him there as well. But they were great. They gave a lot of behind the scenes insight into the making of the films. Uh, My partner and I were thrilled because we each got to hear the actor do our favorite lines. Uh Um, His is Rhodes' line about, I'm running this monkey farm now, Frankenstein. And mine is Laurie's, yes, sir, fuck you, sir. (laughs) Which he did uh, to the panel and everyone just like cheered and interrupted. (laughs) Yeah, but it was great. It was great to be able to take Jeff there. We ended up getting to hang out with some of the other zombies, which was really cool. We met Beef Treats, who is the zombie (laughs) that is chained to the wall in the lab scene and they're trying to feed him the Beef Treats. Um, We got to hang out with him a little bit um, and Jeff got got to spend some time with him. So it was... It was really fun, and it was really exciting to see the community that's starting to build around this film. Again, like, I love Dawn of the Dead, but Dawn of the Dead seems to get all of the love and excitement. But this was right kind of at what I was seeing as the turning point for Day of the Dead, where people were starting to get really excited about this movie and realize just how special and important it is and how it's a very different film mm-hmm. than Dawn, but it's it's as good. Like all of the things that make it different are the things that make it really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I wonder when this movie came out, if people were like, we just want to see a zombie flick. We don't want the social commentary or the political commentary that comes along with it. Yeah. And this one's so much darker. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that perhaps with Dawn very specifically, like it's much easier to be like, Oh, yeah, there was social commentary, but it was in a mall. Right. You guys, it was in a mall. It was a zombie film in a mall. That's what I always hear people say about Dawn. And there's so much more to that movie, obviously. But it's like, oh, it's a zombie film in a mall. Yeah. So there's an element of fun kind of imbued in it. And mm-hmm. the whole, like, biker scene is kind of ridiculous yeah. and silly. Whereas this movie is pretty dark. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty dark. It's pretty downbeat. It's pretty isolated. Yeah. It's not a fun movie. Yeah. And you kind of start off in this movie, like right off the bat, it's like comms are down. There's yeah. nobody to communicate with. Like, if you're going to do anything, you have to do it yourself. You and your small contingency of people, which I think they say at the very beginning, there's 12 left. Yeah. So it's you and the 12 people that are in this underground bunker with you. That's it. That Like, we are not getting anybody over the air. We are not able to communicate with anybody via the bullhorn. Like, they just land the helicopter and they're just yelling for people at the bullhorn. And instead of finding any survivors, they're only finding, you know, they're only finding zombies. So it's very isolationist. At least in Dawn, you're like, okay, well, there's theoretically there's more people because the biker gang comes in. Right. You're like, all right, well, maybe there are more people and maybe they are going to seek out the mall and try and survive that way. But this one... Probably not. Yeah. You're not going to get anybody else. Just and, zombies. <laughs> and in Dawn, it's still earlier on. It's still right. early days of the event. You know, yeah. we see the start of it and then we progress from there. Whereas this one, you're like, you know, they don't they don't ever say how long things have been going on. But you can presume like it's been a while because yeah. we see the calendars that Lori has marked off and it's been a while. Yeah. And they've been at this for a while. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, it is very much more uh, downbeat. There's not really anything funny or, like, lighthearted or any no. levity that's injected. <laughs> no. There's no Tom Savini biker gang. Like, it's pretty much just 
a hardcore group of army guys and your scientists who are just trying to hold out hope. Um, But that is one thing that I think George Romero does really well. And one thing I wanted to bring up is that he does a really, really, really good job of taking a zombie movie or like a quote zombie flick and turning it into something that is social commentary, but also having fleshed out characters that are very nuanced and very realistic and relatable and not just like, this guy's a zombie hunter. He's going to be, you know, he's going to kill all the zombies and he's strong all the time. We see very, very early on that Miguel is struggling mentally and um, Sarah recognizes this and she's like, he, he's like crashing from stress. Like he can't take this anymore. And that is something that is rare to see in zombie movies because it's easy to do somebody who's just running, 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 trying to escape, surviving. But very rarely do we see a character like Miguel who's having a real world reaction and like actually displaying some PTSD. It's easy to see crazy, but it's harder to see like cracking from stress in in a zombie movie, At, at least in what I'm thinking about right now. We're not talking about a television show where you have a longer format to show, you know, the the struggles of characters and the emotional breakdown. In a movie, though, it's easy to do, like, uh, 28 Days Later, where you just see, you know, Killian Murphy just running and surviving. But you never really see him break down in this movie. And I think it kind of inspired, at least the army guys kind of inspire 28 Days Later. Oh, yeah. Towards the end where you have the, the military contingency. Um, who's like breaking down and then, you know, n- not actively going crazy, but like starting to do more desperate and desperate things. Losing their humanity a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. And Miguel, you have that happening in this movie. You have the military, you know, the army guys that are kind of doing that and they're losing their humanity and feeding off of one another in this really gross way. But then you have Miguel who's sort of separate from them. He's like, no, no, I'm okay. And and Sarah's like, no, you are cracking from stress. You're going to do something really desperate and messed up and you're you're failing. Like, you need a break. And I think that that is one of the more, like, I don't want to, I keep using this word tender. It's not really a tender moment, but it's a sensitive moment. Yeah. And how often do you see a moment like that in a zombie film that is written and directed by a man and that story is happening about a man? Right, yeah. And, and, and Sarah is the one that's like, you need a break. Mm-hmm. So very interesting. I love the fact that he added that into the movie. It's very much a different take on Barbara from Night of the Living Dead. You know, that is, you know, we see Barbara throughout that film dealing with just the stress and anxiety and being just unable to handle what's around her in a very, very visceral way. And this sort of takes it and turns it on its head um, by making it a male character, a soldier, somebody who is supposed to be projecting strength. And you have Sarah, this woman, this scientist, who could very well be the air quotes vulnerable character, but she is the strongest of all of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she definitely, like, there are multiple times when Rhodes is really trying to get in her head and she's just, like, shut off. Like, yeah. nope, you're not going to, you can't get in my head. He gets into the guy's heads, like the Absolutely. the helicopter pilot and the mechanic. Very much he gets into their heads, but she's kind of just, like, it, until the very last moment, she's like, you can't make me any more scared because between you and what's happening outside, 
you cannot make me more scared of what's happening outside in here. It's impossible. Yeah. So she very much keeps the, uh, she keeps her head on straight. She does a great job of making a hierarchy of, like, things to be scared about. And Rhodes comes, like, kind of, like, lower on the list. <laughs> Which I would argue just frustrates him even more. Oh, yeah. Because it's, it's emasculating him. Yes. You know, the fact that she's not cowering against him. She's just kind of like, you know, whatever. I have to get this work done. I have to get this research done. To him, all he's got is intimidation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a- another thing that he does really, really well. George Romero does really well in this movie is... Showing toxic masculinity in a time where you said this was 1985, right? Yeah. Okay, so that was a time when we weren't talking about toxic masculinity. It was very. Not at all. Like, I think that it was kind of a last ditch effort to kind of hold on to those, like, like men need to be in the workplace. Men need to be in positions of power because women only know how to be receptionists and, and, and react to the whims of men, especially in the workplace. So I think that he, it was kind of groundbreaking to do a movie where he's like, no, no, let's talk about toxic masculinity. And let me underscore that for you very plainly. And it does get to be uh, ludicrous at times, but in a way that is, we're talking about a group of people who have been underground and isolated from anybody else except for the people who are there for however long they've been there, at least, you know, at least 30 days, which doesn't sound like a long time, but like Survivor, those those uh, seasons of Survivor are only 21 days and people are gnawing at, you know, at other, other people's throats. So seeing toxic masculinity where the army guys are kind of just like they're like reflecting and bouncing that off of one another. It's refreshing to see that in a movie and then to see a strong female lead kind of combat against that. I mean, with support, she does have support from other folks in the movie, but like seeing that underscored very plainly, like you have your, your kind of beta men that are sort of under the alpha of Rhodes and they, all they talk about is sex and masturbating and how uh, Sarah is having sex with Miguel and, that's all they talk about like oh she's got a real man all we have is you know our hands blah 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 and it's like you can very easily see how that idea and only being around these other guys is like driving them crazy like the masculinity is just boiling their brains oh yeah yeah and they're just continually feeding off of one another over and over and over again and the other thing we see in this mix sort of put up against the toxic masculinity is some anti-intellectualism yes uh where we have the sort of you know the army guys who are very you know very physical and just like we're just following the orders up against the scientists and one of the things that just hit me watching this movie this time around and really paying close attention i've watched this movie a couple of times during the pandemic this is one we just kind of put on at home all the time Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but Thinking about the idea of the impatience of the soldiers when it comes to the research, like, it's something that I hear reflected in society all the time. I've heard throughout the past two and a half years, you know, and this sort of, like, demonization of science. Like, well, if if you're so smart, why don't you have a solution yet? Mm-hmm. Why is this taking so long? Like, science takes time, you guys. <laughs> like, that's not, that's not how it works. So... It was interesting to hear those attitudes reflected in this film and that sort of macho, physical, you know, well, we've got the guns up against, you know, 
the the science and the research and the fact that in this situation, of course, like these two parties need each other, you know, they absolutely need each other for survival. And yet they are put at odds against each other because of their roles in society. Yeah, the uh, soldiers not understanding the kind of divergence that the doctor, I'm just going to call him Dr. Frankenstein, because that's the easiest (laughs) to remember, Um, the divergence that he takes from kind of the what they think is a linear path, like step one, have zombies, step two, success like right <laughs> you find cure success find cure yeah <laughs> zombie apocalypse done yeah well he's kind of diverging off of that and starting to do experiments that even Lori doesn't really understand exactly and i can't remember the other doctor's name but there's the there's like the three main yeah, doctors the three researchers yeah and Dr. Frankenstein is kind of he is still completing his his first mission but on the other hand he is kind of branching out and he's saying, well, look what I can do. Look what I've done with Bub. Look at all of the progress that he's made. He doesn't see me as food anymore. Think about how we can uh, take this and kind of apply it to the other zombies or zombies that are of a certain um, stage, I guess you could say, because he's explaining that uh, there's like certain stages of decay. And if it hasn't made it to this certain stage of decay, then there is still hope for them. There is hope to kind of change them or domesticate them. But I I don't want to say that it's not he's not explaining it correctly, because I'm sure that's not the case. The soldiers do not understand the fact that this takes time or that. And they don't want to hear that. Right. It, it, because they've like there's a couple of times when you notice that the soldiers have wedding rings on so like do they how long have they been down there they don't know what's happening with their family they're just kind of stuck down here and so they don't want to hear it takes time there are steps to this process and that science is not always going to be 100% a cure sometimes right. it's going to be a vaccination or sometimes we can't reverse what happened to them but also just killing them all is not a solution because what happens if this happens again right so very interesting discussion of that because i don't know that anybody in the 80s was really thinking like what's going to happen if there's another pandemic <laughs> right or right. or like in a realistic sense what is going to happen. So yeah, you're right. It absolutely is echoed in pandemic times right now, which is still very much an, I mean, everybody wants to put it in their rearview mirror, but it's still very much a thing that's happening. And it absolutely is reflective in sort of a hilarious and very like disappointing way (laughs) right now. Yeah, definitely. It was interesting because, you know, there were a lot of jokes made, especially in the early days of the pandemic about zombies and zombie films and this that and the other and i i as a lover of zombie films kind of checked out of them for a little bit i was like i can't engage with these right now it feels really inappropriate when you have you know um now we're up to it's nine hundred thousand people dead here if that's what you meant Yeah, yeah yeah Yeah, when you're when you're watching people die left and right and you know right as we're recording this we just hit nine hundred thousand dead in the u.s um it feels very inappropriate to make those jokes. Now, the flip side of that is starting to watch some of these movies again, some of my favorites that do have that social commentary baked in. Looking at Romero, like, there it is. Yeah. There's humanity's reaction to an event as we're seeing it play out. Yeah. And I think he, 
I think for as many brilliant things as he was able to do with zombies, what's more brilliant about George Romero is what he was able to capture about human nature in his films. Absolutely. And I, I mean, we're watching this movie now 37 years later, and yet it's still like it how could he have predicted that this is exactly how we were going to react to it? And I'm sure that things were happening then that were in a similar vein, but now, I mean, it's even more dire because then maybe we weren't talking about life or death, right? but it could have also been a reflection or a a reaction to the AIDS epidemic. That's the thing that that's just coming to mind right now as a medical crisis, a health crisis, public health crisis that was happening at that time, very much so beginning to happen. And that's the one thing that I can think of, but we're maybe we're like, we're still talking about life or death now, but in a much shorter time frame because AIDS, it took seven years, you know, for people to really start like, we need to invest money in this. We need to, we need to find ways to care for people who have HIV and AIDS. And also we need to start researching things that are going to help mitigate this crisis and what is causing this and how can we help in the meantime before we're able to find vaccines or preventative care. And now, like, this pandemic has happened in the course of two and a half years. It started in, I think, October of 2019 and made its way here in very early 2020. And we're talking about an even shorter time frame, but it's still happening. Like, yeah. It didn't matter how many people cried and yelled over the AIDS epidemic that happened in the 80s and the early 90s. We're still talking about the same thing today where people are just like, well, if there's nothing that they can do in three months, then I guess there's just no purpose in trying to prevent it. Mm -hmm. Same Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. 37 years later. Yeah. And, and, you know, scientists, you're not doing your jobs or you're, you know, yeah, there's, there's so much, there's so much to mind there. And, and when you talk about isolation, like... (laughs) This movie really explores, like, what happens to people in isolation and what can happen when you have, you know, (laughs) last episode we talked so much about community. Well, I would argue that this is, like, both the absence of community and and a forced community rather than a community of choice completely breaking down. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned while we were watching the movie is being able to be in a community of people where you can generally get along with them. Mm-hmm. And then being a being a part of a community where you're diametrically opposed to what's happening. And I mean, for better or for worse, we're, we were kind of in that situation two years ago where we were in quarantine for X amount of time. And some people were with a community of people that they could generally get, get along with. But how many divorces and, like, breakups and, you know, divesting of families happened between the start of quarantine and the end of it when people were like, oh, my God, I cannot stand you when I have to be around you for so long. And that was just, I mean, we, like, here anyways in Ohio, we were still able to go to the grocery store. You could still, like, go out in your backyard or whatever. We're talking about a group of people in this movie that are in an underground bunker and they literally cannot leave and they just have to deal with it. Yeah. And they're going crazy. Yeah. They're in an underground bunker that is surrounded by zombies on all sides. Yeah. So, and it's really interesting that they like the stakes are so much higher, but we see the, the kind of like the difference in 
these military guys who are supposed to be trained to be in these situations and be in close quarters with folks for long periods of time. Because when you're at war, like, obviously you can't just go to the store or you can't just go outside and, like, play soccer or whatever. There are times when you have to be very isolated and very much in a community of people around you. And the scientist folks are like, we're handling this, like, definitely better. I mean, I don't think that anybody could say that they were handling it worse than the the army folks. (laughs) So, yeah, it's really interesting um, how a movie made in a mindset that is completely different than what we are at right now can speak so much to what we've experienced in the past couple of years. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's just tapping into, you know, as much as we would like to think, you know, that society has changed so much since 1985. And like, yeah, it has, you know, the advent of the internet, um, technology has changed, etc. But the way that we are as people and our inclinations and all of that, hasn't changed since 1985. It hasn't changed since 1885, I would argue, you know, there, there are things that are just so imbued in us that are kind of eternal, despite what we're surrounded by when Mm -hmm. we come up against adversity. Our base inclinations seem to be to act exactly the same way. And it doesn't matter if it's a global pandemic or a zombie apocalypse or even something like minorly inconvenience inconveniencing you we still act in the same way mm-hmm. and it's cra- it's just crazy to see that exact same thing play out like over and over and over again it's like well something's changed and something's never changed yeah um one thing i i kind of touched on it before but one thing i wanted to talk about that i think romero kind of like I don't want to say he started it. He certainly did not start this because I'm sure that there are movies that have a a white woman and a strong black lead as a man. Um, there are definitely movies that have that before this, but I think he really started it and like it was kind of a through line that he stuck with. Night of the Living Dead, white woman lead and strong black male lead. Same thing with Dawn, same thing with Day. And it kind of persists like we even see it in 28 Days, although it's gender swapped. You have Killian Murphy, and then you have your strong black female lead. Um, and I, I think that that was, I don't think it was, like like I said, I don't think it was the first, but it was really groundbreaking to see that happen in a film, especially a movie that is a zombie movie, because I think historically zombie movies were kind of seen as like macho movies or like movies that were catered towards men. And I love that he always had you know, like, okay, especially since Dawn and reflected in Day as well, a strong female lead mm-hmm. and a strong black male lead. Absolutely. So I think that that's a really interesting thing um, that he used in both of those movies, being a white cis male, um, exploring the, the dynamic of having a woman in a role, uh, a leader role, and exploring having a strong black male in a movie. Um, especially a zombie movie, especially an isolation movie. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I mean, certainly Ben in Night of the Living Dead is seen as a revolutionary character. And it's nice to see that Romero didn't just... Well, I mean, I don't even know that he was getting many laurels for that at the time. I think that's yet another thing that people realized kind of later. You know, that, oh, this little independent zombie movie made in the 60s in Pittsburgh 
broke ground on race in film mm-hmm. and in horror. I, I don't know that certainly some folks realized it when Night of the Living Dead came out, but that's that's something that we see reflected back now on that film. But it's nice to see that he didn't stop, mm-hmm. you know, that he kept he kept pushing that and, and playing with that, playing with ideas of who gets to be a leader, who is a follower, um, things about race, about masculinity and femininity. Um, you see that throughout all four of the big four, actually, mm-hmm. because then Land takes it in a, a total different direction. Land really gets into class. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly certainly race as well, but class is a huge thing in Land of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just see a continuation of that exploration that seems to be just something he was really fascinated with exploring in his work. Yeah, and what an awesome like extra layer to add to a zombie movie because obviously you have a threat of zombies. Right. But having those really human um, struggles that happen in society in order to make us able to relate to those movies and adding that extra layer is really something that I think now we do it more so because you have sort of a, an audience that is expecting that you kind of have like this i don't want to say enlightened but i'm going to say enlightened for lack of a better term enlightened audience that's looking for ways to relate to a zombie movie and it's not just blow them up and you know get rid of all of the zombies or whatever but in this movie especially like we are definitely seeing how racism corrupts and like how it never benefits you to other folks right and collaboration is the name of the game in a movie like this. Um, mm-hmm. And in any, really any zombie movie, because how many zombie movies do you see where people ostracize a community or say, I'm going to go out on my own and they <laughs> end up winning? never well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ever. Yeah. Or when, when they're othered or they say, I don't want black people in my group or I don't want this type of person in my group. I mean, it literally happens in Night of the Living Dead. It happens in all kinds of zombie movies. And whenever they isolate themselves or whenever they other another group, they always die. You always are going to die. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you can't, you cannot escape it. So the idea of being exclusionary, you can't survive like that. So very interesting through line in all of those movies. I haven't seen Land as far as, I mean, I think I have, but it's been a really long time. But I'm sure that that probably continues. It does. And Land of the Dead, not to go too far into it, but it's... I kind of did to Land of the Dead what so many people did to Day of the Dead, where I was just kind of like, eh, whatever. Mm-hmm. But watching that one with fresh eyes, there's some really interesting things happening there. You know, the pool of money increases with every film. <laughs> so he had a lot more money um, to do Day of the Dead. And he had even more money. Like, Land of the Dead is the most slick of all of the zombie movies. Mm-hmm. Like, it's got bigger name cast members, you know, people who were established well-established actors like John Leguizamo's in it, mm-hmm. you know, not just, you know, indie actors who maybe got the start of their career in these movies or who were strictly genre actors. The flip side of that is if you look past all of that, there's some really interesting stuff going on that actually started in Day of the Dead. You see a continuation of this exploration of what are zombies? What is their personhood you know Mm -hmm. that dr logan was starting to explore with bub especially are they mindless are they disposable are they people Mm -hmm. um you do hear dr logan at one point say 
I don't know what to call him. You know, he says in his life, in his death, when he's referring to Bub, it's kind of a kind of just a throwaway line if you're not listening for it. It's in one of the lab scenes. But um, they explore that way more in Land of the Dead. And other other zombie media has then taken that idea and really rolled with it. Like, does a zombie deserve personhood? Mm-hmm. You know, is it? Yes, it's somebody who was once alive, but it's sentient Mm -hmm. again. Like, what do you do with that? And how do you react to that? Which is great Mm because I love it because it's taking more of those questions that that the genre can help you play with. Like, who deserves to be a person? Yeah, this movie really like what I was saying before about breaking the rules of of your own zombies. Maybe it's just the by way of time, like the time since night and the time since dawn so during the Day of the Dead, we're seeing that zombies can, some zombies can learn. Yeah. And I think that that's such an interesting idea to play with because it is, it's very unique. Um, it's not something that you see a lot of other zombie flicks deal with, like the learning thing. Not really until ARMY. Like, uh, have you seen it at least in terms of uh, very obvious or very um, clear distinction, at least not in movies that aren't Romero films. Yeah, I mean, Return of the Living Dead sort of does it, but it's in a comedy context yeah. where you have um, the zombies are able to speak, you know, yeah, the, yeah. The send more police, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. But it's not it's not explored in any way. Yeah. It's just more of a comedic plot point. Like, oh no, the zombies can talk and they're sending more people so they can eat them, that sort of yeah. thing. Not really, like, they're, they're um, like, at least Bub is actively trying Mm -hmm. to you can tell he's kind of i I mentioned this while we were watching it his facial expressions are kind of a baby like he's he's like a baby and he's trying to learn and he's no longer trying to eat at least not most of the time there are times when he's like i want to eat you and then he's like no i shouldn't um and there is a very clear scene towards the end where he absolutely could have caught up to Rhodes and just ate him like, he, yeah. he could have just eaten him. But instead, he gets revenge because he knows, some somehow he knows that Rhodes is a bad actor and that he has done something wrong, some sort of transgression. When he sees Dr. Logan dead inside the freezer, he knows that somehow that Rhodes or that the army guys has had something to do with it because those men did not show him kindness before. Right. And now he is, he's like... An infantile brain, but he knows that this man deserves revenge. Like, he deserves to get revenge on this man. So he shoots open the lock, the zombies pour in, and Rhodes is killed in a very iconic scene. I would argue, I've ne- I had never seen this movie before today, and I had absolutely seen this scene before. Yeah. So you, <laughs> you've probably seen it. Yeah, you probably have. If you've watched, like, any sort of montage or like documentary or any sort of just like clip reel of like, especially like uh, really great effect scenes or horror from the eighties mm. or just iconic zombie moments. You have seen that scene yeah. where Rhodes gets killed by the zombies. And Romero does a really, really good job. You kind of go into his movies expecting the bad guys are going to get theirs. Oh yeah. So the, like, it's not, <laughs> I mean, we're spoiling it, but on the other hand, we're kind of not spoiling it. I mean, unfortunately, sometimes the good guys get theirs too. That, that's true. In his that's movies. true. But yeah, the bad guys are definitely like, and 
we're we're moving past the zombies are the bad guys, you know? And, Absolutely. I mean, granted, he's always played with the idea that zombies are not really the the most uh, threatened. They're not the highest level threat to our survivors. Yeah. Um, beautiful scene in Night of the Living Dead. The first time I ever watched Night of the Living Dead all the way through, I absolutely cried at the end of it because I'm just like, oh, this is so real. Yeah. I can't handle it. And then I'm tearing up thinking about it right now, which is hilarious because it's it's certainly not a touching moment, but it is a very scary moment. Absolutely. Um, same with Dawn. I know that there's an original ending to Dawn that was like even more stark than the ending yeah. that actually happened. And Day is kind of the same thing um, where like <laughs> we get a quote unquote happy ending, but at what cost? You know, like seeing that evolution of zombie is like really satisfying to see that zombies are not your apex predator anymore. We have this um, more scared, more desperate, more um, aggressive form of human, um, which I'll say in this movie is definitely male. That is a hundred times more threatening than the zombies because really the zombies are a threat, but they've kind of got a control situation happening where they have them in the stable and they know that they're upstairs, but there's really not a good way for them to get in and they have it gated off. And so it's no longer really a threat that they have these zombies there because they, they have them in sort of a stable situation. And um, Dr. Logan has them all chained up where they are. So it's like less of a threat there than the people who are unchained, you right, know, right. and and they're becoming increasingly unhinged. So I really liked that um, the evolution of zombie to the point where you're like, okay, what does a zombie know? Where are we going with this? Can they evolve past this? Is there something more that they can do? So, and I think that in this particular instance, Bub is definitely not the, no longer the bad guy. Right. I also wanted to talk about so there is a scene where Rhodes, there are multiple scenes where Rhodes kind of goes crazy on the scientists, mm-hmm. especially Dr. Logan. And I thought it was really interesting that scene that we get of um, Logan, who's having that really, he's having a hard, like a very intense scene with Bub and Sarah and uh, McDermott. Is that the uh-huh. Irish guy's name? Okay. They're standing there kind of watching Logan and he does not know that they're watching and he's feeding him a part of a soldier that has recently died. So, I mean, to be fair, the soldier dude's not using the limbs that he's lost. Yeah. Like, he's already dead. <laughs> he's checked out. Yeah. He he died um, in trying to get more specimens from this kind of stable that they have of zombies. And uh, Logan gives Bub a treat, and it's part of the soldier. Well, Rhodes comes in completely on under like he doesn't want to understand what's happening he's already skeptical of logan he's already upset with these things that are happening in the the experiments that he's doing but i thought it was so interesting that rhodes just literally killed two of the scientists like uh, he has killed logan he's he killed the other scientist i can't remember his name the oh, guy with glasses. I his name. The yeah. guy with glasses and the Velcro shoes. Yeah. Um, Logan's assistant. Yeah. He's like the... Logan is probably the highest of the scientist ranking and then the second and then um, Sarah underneath those two. He's just murdered several people. And how many other people has he killed? Like, we, we have no idea. But for whatever reason, he makes the distinction of Logan feeding the already dead... Um, I think it was Johnson... 
um, feeding the already dead to Bub as like a reward, he makes that distinction worse than the murders that he's already committed. Right. And I thought I thought that was so interesting how he th- was like, you can't feed my man to this, you know, or or this contingency of my group. You can't feed him to this zombie because that is not a person anymore. But it doesn't matter the butchery that I've already committed. Um, I just thought it was really interesting that that is the distinction that Rhodes makes. Absolutely. Well, and we see that throughout. Um, Rhodes cannot abide with the idea that Logan is putting forth that the zombies might be capable of personhood. It's like the idea is so offensive to him because that would require him to then parse out a little more. Like, it's much easier to say... Zombie is bad. Zombie is my target. Zombie is a threat. Zombie is what I kill. But when you have to start considering, oh, maybe that's a person. Like, he just can't conceive of it. He can't handle it. And again, like, going back to the whole exploration of human nature, you know, when we see with racism, sexism, I would argue this really gets into ableism Mm -hmm. a lot, you know. It's much harder to have to see... And recognize someone's personhood, especially if you've been told they are the enemy, they are the other, they are not for me to consider. I don't have to consider them. But to do the work of considering somebody's personhood and recognizing it and reckoning that with whatever you've been told or or trained to think about a particular group. Some people just can't handle that. And mm-hmm. and we see, like, he cannot handle that work. No, and I, I misspoke before. He kills Logan and the other scientist after, immediately yeah. after this happens. But for some reason, he is able to, he is able to legitimize murdering Logan and murdering the other scientist. He's able to legitimize that over what Logan had done by using... I mean, already dead meat, as much as that sounds callous, but already dead meat as a treat to Bub, because what else is he going to eat? Right. He won't eat beef treats, so he's got to eat something. Um, He's able to legitimize that over being able to see, like, okay, well, this is actually just using up what we have that's already dead, which is probably a better usage of it anyways, because otherwise, what's going to happen to it? Yeah, well, it's a a whole power and privilege thing. Uh Like, he's completely fine wielding his own power and privilege and straight up committing murder, Mm -hmm. you know, justified by his role, but allowing another being to eat, like, just, just to simply have the privilege of eating is too much for him. He cannot grant that Bub, this other, might be allowed or able or capable of having just a shred of dignity or personhood or having having his needs met. It's, yeah, it's a total, total exploration of, like, power and privilege there, in my opinion. And not only is this just an exploration of that, but also Rhodes had seen the proof of this. Yes. He had, it had been demonstrated for him. Multiple times at yeah. this point. And it's so crazy that he's like, oh, I need revenge against this. Uh, <laughs> I need revenge against this thing that's chained up and, you that's know. That's done me no harm. Right. And 
it, it's also amazing that Bub is able to suss out that he's a bad actor just mm-hmm. simply from the the one interaction that they had had prior to Bub actually like seeing he doesn't see Logan get killed, but he knows like he knows that Rhodes did this to him. So really, really interesting, um, which that like if you're watching this surf like on the surface, you could definitely say that that's a throwaway. It's like, well, well, Bub is bad and like Rhodes is an army dude. And of course he would do that. But like, no, there's definitely some some other more complicated things at work there. Absolutely. Yeah, I really I thought that that was very interesting. And it kind of rolls into like the juxtaposition of having a of a real life bad guy making a zombie an anti-hero. Like, yeah. <laughs> so you're seeing this, you're thinking zombies are bad. We're going to this movie thinking zombies are bad. They are the ultimo ombre. Like th- this is the, the worst of the worst. But then this bad guy makes, he has to, he has to bump this zombie down a peg because he is so much worse. We've done screenings of this a couple of different times over the years at our at our different theatrical horror film events. We um, the year Romero died, we did a retrospective of all four mm-hmm. of the movies, and um, every time when Bub salutes Rhodes right as he's getting disemboweled, everybody cheers. Yeah, everybody cheers because you are on Bub's side. Yeah, you're on the zombie side, not on Rhodes's side. And at the beginning of this movie, the zombies are just simply portrayed as being just zombies. Like, yeah, as they were in out. as they were in Night, as they were in Dawn, they're just the bad guys. They're just bloodthirsty. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, wait, they don't have to be as bad. And by the end of it, you're definitely on Bub's side. And you're like, okay, I can get behind an anti-hero zombie. And they're not all like that. But using a zombie as a tool of revenge rather than just like okay the, this is the existential threat everybody is threatened by this like miguel going up topside and getting the zombies to come in and using them as a tool of revenge and also bub using the other zombies as a tool of revenge like seriously groundbreaking which i'm sure that the first time people watch this maybe it went over their heads a little bit but using them as a tool of revenge to get back on other people and a zombie being able to do that as well like blew my mind yeah it was it's amazing it's really it's really really truly amazing to watch and Romero he plays with that idea a lot like the idea of the kind of like last stand or the martyr character being like okay I will save you I will sacrifice myself so that for the good of you know whomever is left and hopefully this will enable them whether it be something that's planned out or something that's just like this is my last ditch effort to try and make it safe for you guys. I love that idea of like the last stand character. And Miguel is that guy here. He, you know, he goes up top to kind of like rile up the zombies. They, he gets them to come inside of the fenced in, the kind of caged in area where they are. And then he curls himself up on the elevator that goes up to the top and presses the button as they're tearing him apart to let all of them come down. And of course, all the army guys are down there. Yeah. And they're like, oh, crap. And then, of course, they run through the compound that they're in, drawing the zombies all the way through. So really, really cool idea. And, and they're left by Rhodes. Uh-huh. That's the other important thing is, you know, Rhodes tries to stand himself up as this big macho leader. And of course, when all the zombies come down, 
he leaves Steele and Rickles. He yeah. drives away on the golf cart and they're screaming after him like, what are you doing? Yeah. And they're left to their own devices. Yeah. And not only does he do that, which bad enough, he also goes into the compound door and then locks it behind himself. Yeah. Which, this is a door, which, this is a silly distinction to make, but I definitely noticed it. The door opens out. So if a bunch of zombies are hammering against it, you don't really have to unlock it. Because at this point, we don't know whether or not these zombies can open the door. Like, do they still have enough, like, uh, previous memory in themselves to be able to work a knob? We don't know. But he locks the door behind himself, which is just another nail in their coffin. So by the time they actually get to that door, they can't get in. Until Steel, of course, blows the doorknob off, but um, it ends up not being, you know, and not it doesn't help him out much. No. So, but really, like, th- to see the true measure of a man. So he's under the idea that there's a zombie apocalypse. So he's the, the man. Like, he is the top dog. He's got the guns. He's got the ammo. He can kill everybody in here, and then they can all go home. But when it's really, like, you know, down to brass tacks... Instead, he runs and leaves all of his men behind and says, all right, see ya, y'all fend for yourself. Yeah. Like, what a, what a, um, like, you're seeing men in desperate times, but when it comes down to it, the man who is racked by PTSD and stressed is truly the one who sacrifices himself for the good of the folks that are still alive, hoping that maybe this last stand will help them out enough to be able to escape onto the helicopter that's up top. But the man who's like, I am the the power, I can do this, is the one who runs yeah. and leaves everybody behind. So. Hops on a golf cart and yeah. speeds away. <laughs> and it's funny that I got to that point because I really hadn't like connected those dots yet until we were just talking about it. But yeah, absolutely. Like really put into into stress or into a stressful situation he turns into a complete coward which is hilarious because steel has been calling miguel yellow and a coward this entire entire time movie yeah so really a beautiful uh reversal of fortune for miguel like uh, unfortunately he has to sacrifice himself to get there but it absolutely underscores the fact that really the coward is you know Rhodes this entire time so what a what a beautiful way to kind of culminate all of that in terms of Romero films, like, Night is, it's a classic. I mean, like what you said before, it's like, it's almost holy. You can't can't say anything bad about it. And Dawn, too. Like, everybody thinks that Dawn is fun. And Day is much darker. But, wow, like, so much to talk about. There's so much more to talk about with this one. There's so much more nuance to this one than, like, Romero is clearly... He has, he's always had something to say about society, but like this one is really where like he gains the footing. Like I am really going to make a very clear stand about how I feel about toxic masculinity, about how I feel about heroes. Um, what you said earlier about who can be a leader in this one, it's very clearly Sarah. I mean, yeah. Sarah is the one who stands up to Rhodes. Sarah is the one who doesn't, she doesn't break in the face of danger or adversity, except after she has very brutally chopped Miguel's arm off and then lit a torch on fire to cauterize his wound yeah. in hopes that he will not turn into being a zombie. Um, and then she breaks down a little bit. But right afterwards, like it's like a snap of a finger. She's right back into being like, okay, we got to get out of here. So really awesome. Um, and 
you have John, who's your, your helicopter pilot, but he, this is a thread that we have been touching on in several movies multiple times. He's not her boyfriend, but he cares about her. Yeah. And he cares about her enough to lift her up and let mm-hmm. her be, He he's not like, let me be the strong one. You right. Know? He's like, no, I understand where you're coming from. Let me lift you into where you need to be in order for us all to kind of survive. So Yeah, definitely. And did you say that there's going to be a sequel to this one? Well, yeah. Okay, so um, if you like this one, um, I should say Day of the Dead very sadly has, I think, had the most kind of remakes and sequels in name only and they're all terrible. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. They're all they're all terrible. There was a Day of the Dead air quotes remake. There have been actually I think two now. They have nothing to do with the original movie. So like I didn't like them on that on that token. Take them as their own films, but don't think These are not like the Savini remake of Night of the Living Dead or the Snyder remake of Dawn of the Dead. Day of the Dead has never had that treatment. There was a sci-fi series uh, that came out last year in 2021, and I actually haven't seen it yet. But uh, based on the description, it also has nothing to do with the original film. Boo. Boo. (laughs) Now, the flip side of that is that there is a movie in production right now called Night of the Living Dead 2. And the idea behind that one is that it's going to be kind of in the same spirit as a lot of these uh, recalls, as as Scream gave us that term, where it is a sequel to the original film, but it also, in this case, takes the other films into account, especially given the way that Romero's films are so linked together. Mm -hmm. And we do know right now that Laurie Cardell, Terry Alexander, and uh, Gerlith Conroy are all going to be in that. They've been cast. And this is something that fans have wanted and the actors have wanted for years At the very end of this movie, we see uh, Sarah, John, and McDermott on the island that they've been talking about the whole film. It's not, insofar as we see in this film, it is not a Fulci island or a Zack (laughs) Snyder island. So we don't see zombies running right out on the beach to eat them. It seems very chill, very peaceful. The thought has always been that... We assume that these characters survive and we see them kind of surviving and thriving at the end. Wouldn't it be cool to see them come back? And the actors have always kind of said like, yeah, we would we would be willing to come back and portray these same characters. And that seems to be what is happening in Night of the Living Dead 2. It's allegedly supposed to come out in 2022, but it's another one of those kind of pandemic-y I don't know. I'm not even sure if they're done shooting yet mm-hmm. um, because making movies is possible right now, but it's also very tenuous with all of the COVID precautions that still have to be taken. But I'm really excited to see these characters come back and they will be their older selves, presumably having survived, having figured out how to survive all of this time since Day of the Dead happened in 1985. Yeah. We're really living in an interesting time for requels because 
you have folks who cut their teeth on these movies either by watching them as kids or or maybe working as you know like helping with effects or you know hurting the extras or whatever and now they actually have the enough money and they've done enough work where they are actually like coming out and making sequels and requels and and reimagining these films it's a really interesting time to be a horror fan and that's really exciting especially when you have like so many kind of flops like stuff that use those names or use those ideas and then they didn't do very well or maybe the the um the studio isn't it for cash or the idea wasn't fully fleshed out and now we have people who are like, no, no, I really, really love this thing. Please let me make it. Please let me get the actors together. They want to do it too. And the studios are like, okay, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll do it. Let's give you some cash. Exactly. And, you know, just like with everything else, the, the case of Romero sequels, is it Night of the Living Dead 2 is an unofficial sequel, which as we've seen, you know, that has spawned so many different threads. And Mm -hmm. that's very much in keeping with really the only official sequels are the ones that were made by George Romero. Night of the Living Dead 2 is an unofficial sequel. But if you know the sort of Romero canon, unofficial sequels are actually really common. Right. So... Plus, we unfortunately don't have Romero here to No, he help died in 2017. Yeah. yeah. So we we don't have uh, Romero to give his official blessing on things like that. But, I mean, having normally having the original actors come in, at, even if it's for a cameo, even if it's for a couple of minutes, is typically a pretty good sign that at least, at least at the very top of it, the story is going to honor where we left off. Definitely. At, at the original. Yeah. So... Uh, uh, might I say that uh, the same thing happens in Scream. So yes, <laughs> <laughs> which I hope that we get to talk about that eventually, because uh, I feel like I didn't get a, a good chance to like watch it critically for this because I was just like so stoked to yeah. see it. I was yeah. like, I just want to I just want to experience it without having to write notes. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll get to it soon. I think. Yeah, for listeners that have heard us like for the past three episodes talk about Scream, I'm kind of waiting until we can see it again because we got to see it like basically opening day in the theater. But we were, you know, we wanted to experience it as fans first rather than like in in podcast mode. So we'll get to it when we can actually as soon as it hits streaming or DVD when we can actually watch it again and watch it like people that are going to talk about it for an hour <laughs> yeah. rather than just like yay it's scream i know we do that so often where like we're, we go to see a movie with the exception being like last night in soho i feel like and that antlers movie, yeah we, we were able to actually like the movies are kind of they weren't beloved to us because neither of those were like part of a huge you know series of movies so we didn't really know what we were going into so it's easier to do it but with scream five you're like mm, i like we we kind of grew up like I know that I the original Scream movie was like when I was a kid, you know, and I, you were young then too. Like, oh yeah, there's a little bit of an age difference there, but I mean, you you watched it when you were young, and I was like, I was definitely in elementary school because <laughs> we weren't allowed to wear Scream masks <laughs> when Aww. like when that came out. They because we were allowed to wear Halloween costumes to school. Nobody was allowed to be Ghostface. Because it was so scary. They were like, we don't want to freak kids out. So I like, I love that. Should we like tease what we're doing next? Should we tease what we're sure, watching next? We can, we can tease what we're watching next. This is one that I have not seen and you have seen once. Is that right? <gasps> yes. Okay. I didn't see that you put this on the schedule. I'm so excited. Okay. So um, this was a really early pandemic 
both film in production and also film that was released on Shudder. And it's one of the highest rated movies on Shudder. It's a Shudder original. Um, it's called Host. And it's all pretty, um, pretty new actresses and actors to this film. And it was filmed entire, like almost entirely on webcam on purpose because at this time, because this film is actually British, um, at the time, especially in England, during the very beginning of the pandemic, it was hardcore lockdown um, and very, very serious lockdown there because they obviously got it a little bit earlier than we did. It's a bit of a short film, but um, watching this was really exciting because it was kind of a new breed of film. We've seen movies that have to do with like digital recording and stuff, but it's very self-aware. It knows that the pandemic is happening and all these friends are trying to get together in spite of the pandemic. So I'm really excited to watch it again because I, I, I have not watched it again on purpose because I wanted to watch it with you. So I'm really Yay! excited. <laughs> and I have not seen it yet. So this will be good. So all of the jump scare scares will be preserved. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll be next time. Yay. Episode nine. Woohoo. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com, Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and on Twitter at Final Girls Pod. Our theme music is by House Ghost and available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And tell your friends about us. I'm Julia. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.